0: Hello and welcome to the Urbanist Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The sister city recognises
1: its role as not to simply ship people to offices in a larger centre, but to create a destination
0: in and of itself. We're exploring sister cities, second cities and urban neighbours today to find out what major centres can learn from their smaller siblings and from the metropolis next door. From housing solutions in one of Canada's mid-sized cities... So the livability lessons from an urban centre just outside of Amsterdam. Plus the story of twin cities that have grown up apart and why they're not likely to merge anytime soon. That's coming up over the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. <music> Housing affordability is hitting a boiling point in Canada. The idea of home ownership for many middle-class millennials and Gen Z Canadians is becoming out of reach. A shortage of housing stock, a rising population and a labour shortage in construction are partly to blame. But there are other factors at play too. So what are some of the big city neighbours and regional municipalities doing to help build millions of homes across the country? Monocle's contributor, Sheena Roster, takes us on a tour of one mid sized Canadian city that's looking at making housing more affordable through rezoning and new housing designs.
2: It's an unseasonably hot June day in Edmonton, and the air conditioning is blasting on a city bus reserved just for us. On this bus, there are mayors, city councillors, developers, and planners for the Edmonton Metropolitan Region. And today, we're doing a tour of three new developments in the Edmonton suburbs.
0: Um,
3: Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We're super excited to be convening um, the people who are building this region together on one bus. This is actually super fun.
2: But before we get going, just give me a second here, and I'm going to metaphorically get off the bus. We're all here today on this bus because housing affordability has become a massive problem in Canada. Now, we always have to ask the big picture question, how did we get here? Here's the quick and dirty version. Home ownership in Canada only really came into the picture for most people after the Second World War. It was around that time that the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation was created, and they started to extend favorable mortgage terms to borrowers. And then it was in 1954 when governments started to insure private mortgages. This allowed banks to lend more with lower risk, and it opened up home ownership to many people. Owning a single-family home with that big yard and garage was seen as a way to prosperity over the past several decades in Canada. Now, fast forward to the early 2000s. Mortgage rates dropped and prices soared. In 2009, mortgage rates dropped again. It was a way to prevent similar impacts of the housing crisis that was happening in the U.S. at that time. And then two years later, in 2011... Home ownership then peaked around 70%, driving prices up yet again. Limited housing stock, typically which hasn't been built since post-war period or the 1990s, foreign ownership, a rising population, and a labor shortage are all factors that have made housing in large urban centers like Toronto and Vancouver unaffordable for many. The pandemic presented opportunities for Canadians in big hubs to move to smaller markets. And at the start of the pandemic, interest rates dropped too, making it easier for many people to borrow money, creating rising prices in all Canadian urban centres. Now, just to save for a down payment, many young Canadians would have to be saving for around 17 years to get into the market. In Vancouver and Toronto, residents have to save for about 30. So now, that single-family home isn't so affordable to many in a new generation. And in order to be able to house everyone, the country needs to build a whopping 5.8 million homes by 2030. The federal government is providing some funding for that through the Rapid Housing Initiative. Now where people live is going to look different, and urban planners across the country are looking to densify and filling in that missing middle. Homes need to be built now and fast. All right, now let's get back on the tour.
4: Stop number one. (laughs) First thing we're going to do today is we're going to make you look at streets.
2: At our first stop, we're getting a lesson on zero lot lines, where homes are built right on the property line on one side rather than traditionally keeping space on both sides of the home. Now, in a car-centric region like Edmonton, this raises concerns and questions around parking for additional cars. The homes aren't actually getting built differently, but the land that it's built on is just being used in a more
3: efficient way. Change is always a bit difficult. Uh, innovative, new things is always hard, especially when we're looking at changing existing neighborhoods that people love and, and are used to.
2: That's Ann
3: Stevenson, a
2: city councillor for the City of Edmonton. By background, she's also a city planner, a position she held when the city changed zoning in some of the more mature neighborhoods, allowing for new housing types like garden suites, which are built on top of garages, Basement suites, duplexes, and now row housing to be built in zones that were traditionally designated just for single-family homes. Edmonton is a leader in North America on getting these zoning regulation changes and by helping fill in that missing middle.
3: You know, lots of other cities like Vancouver, Toronto, trying to do these things now. But again, (laughs) the horse is very much out of the barn in those cities. So it's something that I believe we've done right and need to continue doing to, to keep our affordability advantage.
2: She says that social housing, similar to a model that has been done in the UK, where social housing has been built proportionately to other housing stock, is a
3: way to make housing more equitable for all. What I'm hoping we start to see in Canada is a shift to an approach like the UK where housing is as much of a an infrastructure piece in our cities as as roads. I know that in the UK there was a lot of focus on some of the the key worker housing. And we're getting to that point too where Canadians who provide vital jobs in our economy, whether that's the service industry, in health, they're now struggling with housing. So I'm hopeful that we start to see more of that discourse, just recognizing that we need places for people to live, for us to all thrive and that it becomes more part and parcel of how we build our cities.
2: In one of these zero-lot line show homes with a fully equipped rentable basement suite, I meet Tanya Nash. She's a sales manager for the home builder Daytona Homes. For the younger potential home buyers that she meets, the option of having a rental property in a basement suite
4: is essential for getting into the housing market. So we're seeing that customers are having a harder time to qualify for mortgage. They're having to come up with that down payment, right? So that's a lot of money to come up up front. And at times, they don't have that. So they're they're having to save. They're asking mom and dad and grandpa. Having the flexibility to have that sweet opportunity will allow the next generation to be able to get into housing, which is what everybody wants. It's, It's all about homeownership.
5: Affordability is a very challenging thing because it's a moving target.
4: This is Dennis Peck. He
2: is the manager of planning and development for the city of Leduc, an industrial city just south of Edmonton in the greater metropolitan area. For him, it's not just a question of affordability, but changes to land use bylaws are critical now to make neighbourhoods sustainable for the long term.
5: We need to keep in mind that about 60% of the housing built now did not exist as a built form 10, 12 years ago. So as we're planning forward and talking about developing neighborhoods in 10, 20, 30 years, we're not even sure what the housing form will be that needs to be on those new developed areas. So we have to be very open to these conversations because it's a moving target that's happening out there. And we need to be constantly thinking about what is the market looking for? What can the developers actually deliver? What are the implications of new code requirements, new development requirements? All these things are happening at once.
4: You're not going to see a big yard. Here, instead, people get an outdoor space that is a deck. And although some people definitely want the yard, some people definitely don't want a yard.
2: Courtney Jensen is a managing partner at Strata Developments, a land developer. She's also the Urban Development Institute Regional Committee Chair. She's co-developing a new subdivision in the City of Edmonton, And she's showing off some of the new forms of housing in hopes that they can be developed in regional municipalities outside of Edmonton too.
4: It's wonderful for them to have the chance to see some of this stuff build out and work first. And then, you know, adopt it later with less risk that it won't be welcome in their communities. To have had years of of some of these products being built in Edmonton, show that they work, show that people bought them show that other people then bought them later, so they weren't undesirable in the long term. Like, that makes a big difference in terms of how our regional municipalities can feel like they're really de-risking themselves, because hopefully we build these neighborhoods and they last for a very long time.
2: On this bus tour, I meet the mayor of St. Albert, Kathy Heron. The small city is an affluent municipality in the greater Edmonton area, It's a place where many people are used to growing up in that big, sprawling home with a yard and a place to park your truck. What is being shown here on this housing alternatives tour doesn't look like many homes that people would buy in her city. But Mayor Herron says that changing the mindset of many Canadians like her constituents is what's needed to make housing more affordable.
3: I heard stats that Canada needs to build 5.8 million homes by 2030. It's a lot of homes, so we need density like this. I also think people need to kind of reconsider their lifestyles in many ways. Do You really need to have six boxes of Christmas decorations, etc. When you start changing that attitude, it's a better impact on the environment, for sure. And it really does help with housing affordability. So I'm excited about some of the stuff I've seen today. What the suburbs
2: look like and the type of homes in them across Canada are changing. How Canadians live and attitudes towards what homeownership looks like have to change. Otherwise, the status divide of being a homeowner or not, and the question of housing affordability will impact the economy as a whole. If people can afford to live in the country's major cities, then who are they really for? For Monocle, in Edmonton, I'm Sheena Rossiter.
0: Commuter cities, bedroom communities and feeder towns are all slightly unflattering titles for an urban trend common in the outskirts of major cities around the world. These so-called ex-burbs serve as more affordable options than living within city limits. But if neglected, the result is often lifeless communities without character and livelihoods of their own. Harlem, situated 20 kilometres west of Amsterdam, is aiming to buck that trend and offer a better quality of life um plenty of personality to rival its big brother to the east. Ryan Mulligan is a recent visitor to Harlem, and he sent us this report on what the city is doing right to foster its own community outside of Amsterdam.
1: As more and more people find themselves priced out of big cities, people who haven't yet entered the housing market are looking for their field to put down roots. For some, that means making a new life in the suburbs. For others, it means landing in feeder cities. While these feeder cities are cities in their own right, they're more often smaller and situated close enough to large metropolises that act as a reasonable alternative for folks trying to stay connected to the big city. Some feeder cities land the unfortunate title of commuter cities, or heaven forbid, bedroom communities. The best feeder cities can land the more flattering title of sister city, which means they likely rival the big city in personality and in vibrancy. For many feeder cities, becoming a commuter city can be its death knell, defined solely by its proximity to another more lively, more vibrant place, rather than standing on its own merits. Before I tell you about which feeder cities have managed to get it right, let me describe to you what characterizes a bad feeder city. The struggling feeder city tends not to have a gravitational pull of its own. It defines itself solely by its more affordable housing, its proximity to a highway, and the short commute to the big city. Conversely, a feeder city, or should I say in this case, a sister city, getting it right, has a unique spirit and a gravitational pull, giving residents a reason to stay put on weekends, relocate their offices, and go for dining right where they live. The sister city recognizes its role as not to simply ship people to offices in a larger center, but to create a destination in and of itself. A place for people to shop, to live, to relax, to raise families, and to retire. It knows that a vibrant food scene, flourishing brick and mortar, and thoughtful green spaces act as a magnet for residents to spend their hard-earned money propping up the local economy rather than an economy 30 kilometers away. My family and I had a chance to visit a thriving sister city this spring, spending three weeks in Harlem. No, not the famous borough in New York, but the Dutch city of Harlem, which is just a 15-minute trade ride from Amsterdam. It's no secret that Amsterdam is a tourist hotspot, and so much so the Dutch government recently launched the, quote, stay away campaign to deter tourists from heading there for drug and alcohol benders. While we weren't planning many benders with our kids in tow, we did want to set up base in a quieter, more family-friendly setting, but still close enough to Amsterdam to be able to drop in every once in a while. Oddly enough, during our two-week stay in Harlem, we ended up making only one trip into Amsterdam because of what Harlem allowed us to do. Harlem, like much of the Netherlands, can be characterized as a bit of an urbanist paradise, even for tourists unfamiliar with the city. We rented bikes when we arrived and we did our best to spend our 17 days like locals. We bike to get groceries, to the park, to our apartment, to the museum, for coffee, for lunch, and for our post-dinner gelato dates. Some days we bike just to explore, get lost, and pass the time. Harlem is getting it right what many feeder cities get wrong. They've invested in urban mobility within their own community. They've made ease of mobility within the city limits a key feature, and a reason why young people looking to start a family have been moving from Amsterdam to Harlem. Cycling in Harlem was safe, simple, and oftentimes quicker than any other mode of transport. It wasn't uncommon to see families piled into cargo bikes for the daily commutes, on their way to karate or dance class and then quickly popping by the grocery store on the way home. The number of women, children, and elderly people biking stands in stark contrast to most North American cities, where cycling is dominated by spandex-clad men. To strengthen cycling safety and walkability even further, city authorities are in the midst of implementing plans to remove daytime car usage from another 11 streets in their urban core. Beyond cycling, one moment of shock for my family came when we missed our train to Amsterdam, but notice the next train was coming in only eight minutes. We later learned that there are 133 trains per day running between Harlem and Amsterdam, making it easy just to jump on the train at any moment to commute home or get into the office or go to a restaurant or a party. Why on earth would you need a car when you can simply show up at the train station and get on the first train you see? Another important feature of a good feeder city is that they're dense. Suburbs are famously undense and can feel like a bland extension of a larger urban center. Dense feeder cities, on the other hand, have their own town square, a walkable main street, its own vibrant retail that responds to its location. Harlem's density is approximately 5,000 people per square kilometer. And by comparison, in the greater Toronto area, for example, the largest feeder area in Canada, which is comprised of about 24 communities, the average density is about 900 people per square kilometer. For years, many North American suburbs became allergic to density fearing it would bring the end of their neighborhood, when in reality, density is the answer to many of the problems facing North American suburbs. Density brings vibrancy, healthy main streets, and stronger public finances. Density means public transit can flourish. Post-COVID cities around the world are looking at transit authorities running a deficit. Harlem's public transit was frequent, well-run, and reliable. In my day job, I work with some Canadian cities looking to reinvigorate their urban downtowns. During a recent briefing session, one feeder community in particular lamented the fact that their local restaurant scenes struggled because only 45 minutes away, residents could eat at some of the best restaurants in Canada. Not only were their best restaurateurs leaving the city, but so were their big restaurant spenders. It may not shock you to hear this, but this city's downtown is neither walkable, vibrant, or dense. Now, my family wasn't the first to see the benefits of Harlem. Everyone we spoke with, from Dutch nationals to expats, all agreed that Harlem is a perfect place for young families. They would cite the good schools, the large expat community, museums, cultural offerings, and of course, bike infrastructure and public transit. The one inhibitor is that so many people are feeling this way that housing prices in Harlem have shot up 130% in nine years. Of course, this still puts Harlem on more affordable footing than Amsterdam, mind you. As more and more young people and families are priced out of major centers, theater cities will play an increasingly important role in our lives. It's in all of our best interests to see these communities building into their own livability, making them more than just a bedroom community. What good feeder cities tell us is that livability is more than just your daily commute to work. If you define your city by the ease of highway access or its proximity to another center, it will lose its soul. But if your city decides to stand on its own, building up local businesses, supporting a vibrant food scene, investing in schools, culture, parks, activities, it will be self-reinforcing, making it a more attractive place to live for reasons other than its proximity to a major urban center. A good feeder city recognizes that yes, people will still be commuting into a larger center for work. So why not make it as easy as possible? Better yet, why not create an environment where companies who are headquartered in the larger center see the feeder city as a place to relocate because the quality of life for the employees is so strong. In short, the best feeder cities will make you forget all about the big city you left when you were young and single. And before long, the fashionable partygoers might be seen in your neighborhood bar and not one thirty kilometers away.
0: My thanks there to Ryan Mulligan, reporting from Harlem. Finally today, we look at two close neighbours who have remained independent despite their close association. Minnesota's twin cities of Minneapolis and St Paul are major US centres in their own right, both the state's largest city and the state capital, respectively. But despite the potential benefits and the two centres growing so large that their border has all but disappeared, They've never truly come close to officially merging. Kevin Dukeshire, an editor at the Minneapolis Star Tribune, joins me now to explain the reasons behind the Twin Cities' continued separation. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Can you explain, perhaps first of all, for our listeners who might not be that familiar with these two places, a little bit about the cities?
6: Twin Cities are in the state of Minnesota, in the upper Midwest of the United States. They're a leading commercial and financial and political center for this region of the United States. They're basically opposite each other on the Mississippi River. The population of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis is somewhere around 450,000, and St. Paul is trailing by about 100,000. So altogether, both cities encompass about 700,000 people, but the Twin Cities region itself, the metro area is about two and a half million people, which makes up about half the uh, total population of the state of Minnesota. Uh,
0: you've written this fascinating piece about why it's still the Twin Cities, why these two cities, which now abut each other, there are places where I, I believe you can almost jump back and forth between the Twin Cities, why they never became just one city. What, what was your intrigue about that? Because I think the the story that you wrote was headlined that it was once considered the destiny that they would merge What caught your interest?
6: The story, Andrew, started with a feature that my paper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, provides every Sunday. It's called Curious Minnesota, and we take readers' questions on all things Minnesota. And one of our readers wrote in and said, you know, why haven't the Twin Cities ever merged? It certainly would make a good deal of sense in terms of duplication of services. We could establish a more united identity. And we would take our place among the leading cities in the United States population-wise. Now, right now, Minneapolis ranks, I think, 46 in population in the United States, and St. Paul is in the 60s. If the Twin Cities were to merge today, they would be the 19th largest city in the United States right between Seattle and Denver, which are the cities that we compare ourselves to in any event. So this reader is saying, well, why not merge? And have we ever talked about merging? And in fact, we have in the past, and that was the
0: basis for the story. Tell me the history of it then. Why did these two cities grow up in such different ways? And what are the differences, first of all, between the two sides of the Mississippi and the the character of these two places?
6: Well, that's really the basis for what has happened and why the cities have remained uh, the same all these years. St. Paul was founded in about 1841 at what was considered to be the start of navigation on the Mississippi River. And so St. Paul built itself on the basis of river commerce. It was the farthest city upriver north of St. Louis and Memphis and New Orleans. And so it was able to pull down river, uh, the logging uh, that was done in Wisconsin, Minnesota, Minneapolis didn't start until about 1867, which is a full quarter century after St. Paul did. And Minneapolis really got its start because it's located on what is the only significant waterfall on the Mississippi River, St. Anthony Falls. It's not much of a waterfall. And if you were here today, you wouldn't think much about it. There's a concrete screen over it now. It's not very high, but it did fuel what started out to be the logging trade back then, And eventually, the flour trade, the milling industry, which made Minneapolis the mill city for the United States and one of the leading industrial cities in the country. So St. Paul was founded on the basis of river commerce. Minneapolis was founded more on the basis of manufacture, milling, and so forth. So the two cities got their starts in different ways. Now, St. Paul started out much bigger, and it became the capital of the state when Minnesota entered the Union in 1858. But Minneapolis merged with its twin city, St. Anthony, across the Mississippi River in the 1870s. And by doing that, brought itself up almost population-wise with St. Paul. So that set the stage for the talk about the merging in the late
0: 1800s. And tell me just one of the reasons that you would imagine it would have eventually come to a decision to merge is I presume there's a duplication then of like city services, of the need for two city halls just everything. You need to double up on most things, I guess.
6: That's exactly it. Now, you have to remember, when both cities started out, they did start at different parts of the river, and they did not adjoin each other. St. Paul was rather farther downstream on the Mississippi than Minneapolis was. But eventually, as the cities grew together geographically in the 1880s and 1890s, that's when the talk of, of mergers started to emerge. And you're right, both cities had their own city halls, their own counties. There are two different counties that the cities are the county seats for. So they started out separate on the river, but they began to grow together, and it became clear that they were going to, in
0: fact, to join each other. And that's part of what got this going. And now tell me, the arguments for coming together, have there been proponents? Have there been moments where that destiny seemed potentially likely?
6: Well, it's funny because we found out that in the 1880s, the talk about merging really was more prominent around the country than it was necessarily in the Twin Cities. A lot of people looked at how Minneapolis and St. Paul had grown and began to talk about the fact that together they might begin to threaten Chicago, perhaps, as the Northwest's leading industrial and commercial capital, if they were, in fact, to join together. In the Twin Cities themselves, that wasn't necessarily the case. Both cities As they began to equal each other population-wise, they both began to look at the other with some mutual suspicion and and even contempt, I think. And it wasn't until the census war of 1890 that the whole thing came to a head. That was the first time when Minneapolis and or St. Paul would establish preeminence over the other in terms of population. They were both very close. And what happened was you had spies from each city going to the other city to find out what was being done there with regard to bolstering population numbers and so forth
0: tell listeners a a few truths then so is one side better than the other who's got the best sports teams
6: (laughs) (laughs) well you're going to get me into trouble you know that there really actually is a pretty nice division of sports teams most of the professional sports teams are on the minneapolis side but at this stage of development in the life of the Twin Cities, I think a lot of people uh, have moved into the Twin Cities. There aren't as many established families as before. And if somebody lives in Minneapolis or St. Paul nowadays, they really don't think terribly much about the city line or the boundary
0: as perhaps they once used to. And so jobs, going to college, going to school, you might find yourself turning up at an institution on either side of the divide? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I live
6: a block west of the Mississippi River, and the bridge is five blocks from my house. I find myself going to St. Paul as much as staying in Minneapolis to, you know, run errands, to buy groceries, to go to a restaurant, to be entertained. There actually is part of the boundary between the two cities. That's just a city street. So you can cross the street and you're crossing from one city into the next. Most people, I I would submit to you, don't even recognize that that is the boundary line. So it seems to matter less today than it used to in the
0: past. And as it matters less, do you think there will be any moment in the future where there will be a, a point where people say, look, just in the interest of finance, or just in the interest of sharing resources, it's time for us to be one? I don't see any
6: sign of that. It's always a possibility. Minnesota, for instance, has 87 counties. And as you get away from the Twin Cities to the north and west, the population becomes very sparse and it's occurred to a lot of people, why don't we consolidate some of these counties and we could save a lot of money in terms of services and so forth and so on. I don't see that happening with Minneapolis and St. Paul. I think people are comfortable with what each city has to offer. Each city has terrific residential neighborhoods, really interesting and scenic downtown areas, Minneapolis is obviously the big player, and it gets the most attention. And St. Paulites are a bit miffed by the fact that a lot of people from outside of Minnesota refer to Minneapolis as the Twin Cities area. You talk about Minneapolis, not Minneapolis, St. Paul, or the Twin Cities. But St. Paulites have gotten used to that. For instance, if you're flying into MSP Airport here, oftentimes over the loudspeaker, the pilot will say, we're, we're approaching Minneapolis, and St. Paul people get a little upset that they don't say Minneapolis St. Paul.
0: They're shouting at the back of the plane, are they? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just before we let you go, I, I guess one of the other perhaps obvious reasons for them not joining up is the terrible names that people came up with, for uh, what would happen if they were combined. I, I even tried to read them to myself, Minneapolis, which is <laughs> sounds like a tongue twister as you try to say it.
6: Yeah, the names. I thought the names were the most fun part of the story for me, frankly, because there were. I counted about nine different variations. The Archbishop of Saint Paul, who thought that the two cities would eventually merge and bought up real estate between the two cities toward that end, thought that Paulopolis would be a good name for the merged cities. As you said, Minneapolis uh, was another very popular selection. Mini Paul uh, was another one. At one point, some people thought that Washington, DC should be moved, the national capital should be moved to the midsection of the country because the country had gotten so big. And the emerged Twin Cities was suggested as perhaps the new national capital. And they talked about it, calling it Federal City. So, yeah, there have been a lot of names. But as I said, I don't see this happening. It's possible somebody might bring it up, and it's possible that it even makes a certain amount of sense. But given the different histories, the different cultures. I just don't see that happening anytime soon.
0: Kevin Dukesha there, and thank you so much for joining us on The Urbanist. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up for the podcast to get new episodes every week, and subscribe to Monocle magazine at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Robello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's The Shy Lights with We Are Neighbours. Thank you for listening, city lovers.